Dotnet Rocks, episode 1094, with guest Bob Martin. Recorded Friday, January 16th, 2015. Welcome back to Old Home Week here on .NET Rocks. <laughs> you like this week I put together for you. It's a good week. <laughs> yeah, we got Billy Hollis, Chris uh, Love, uh, Uncle Bob's here now. Howdy. <laughs> yep, yep. I just wanted to ground us, ground us in 2015. You know, I, I can always we can always count on our old friends to bring us back to reality, you there know? There you go. Yeah. yeah. So how you been, Mr. Campbell? Ah, uh, you know, uh, plunking away, this, that, and the other thing. I had a long strip at home. I mean, I think almost four weeks, which is kind of the limit, right? At that point, the wife's like, you got to go somewhere because you <laughs> keep staying here. Nothing good's going to happen. So. Yeah. I, I have enjoyed being home. Really yeah. have. It was a good Christmas break, no question. But the, we're back in the swing of things. Got a consulting customer over in Europe and working on conference projects. So there's all kinds of stuff going on. It's yep. exciting times. Exciting times indeed. In time for uh, to continue our Visual Studio Tips series. Oh. Let's roll the stupid music for Better Know a Framework. Awesome. All right, buddy, what do you got? Uh, well, you know, you use F12 to go to definitions all the time. In yep. other words, if you uh, are and typing some code and working away and uh, you want to see where either a variable gets defined or a method is or a property handler is you press f12 you go there and uh, sometimes you just want to know where it is you just want to see one thing and then come back right mm -hmm. well you can get back but there's an easier way to do it without completely rocking your world and changing the screen and that's peak definition oh alt 12 Alt-12. Okay. Visual Studio 2013, yeah, Alt-12. And what this does is it brings up a panel on the bottom of the screen and sh just shows you where it is. And then you close it and it goes away. So you can stay focused in the code you're in and not rock your world by, you know, pulling out the rug from under you. Nice. Isn't that cool? That's a good, that's a good one. Peak definition, Alt-12. Know it, learn it, love it. Richard, who's talking to us today? I grabbed a comment off of show 934, and it's the one we did with Mr. Martin mm -hmm. when we were at NDC London the previous year. Yeah. And that was in the midst of that whole healthcare.gov debacle. And it, I, I thought it was a really interesting testament about software craftsmanship. Mm -hmm. And it, there were a lot of comments about that show uh, uh, all over the map, including the fact that Bob and I went off the rails partway through the show talking about interstellar space, which led to a geek out. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It sure did. <laughs> <laughs> but you know the problem with the problem with NDC is we're having so much fun there, and we're all in person. We yeah. are prone to a bit giddiness. Now we're at the studio. Maybe we'll be a little more formal. Who knows? We'll see what happens. But this is a, a lengthy comment, <laughs> but I thought very worthy. Don't uh, count on it. <laughs> <laughs> So Eric Large says, hi, guys. I'll just dive right in. I'm a, currently a junior developer on a government contract. I've thought a lot about why the government software system is so bad and how healthcare.gov isn't just an outlier, but a symptom of a broken system. Mm -hmm. And this is part of my experience so far. The way the government contracts work is interesting. It depends on the specific contract. My contract, for example, is stated that we have no rights to the software we create. Once it's written on our machines, which are supplied by the government, it is theirs. 
so we aren't exactly accountable for deployment, nor can we, as the contractor, stop it. Which is not that unusual, you know, an awful lot of contracts work that way. Mm -hmm. Uh, Also, our development environments have specific requirements for all new software. That is, we must go through a security process where it is approved by the government. Currently, that would be Visual Studio 2010 and no more. Right. This also means no open source software. (laughs) <laughs> and this means that all our environments are typically one to three years behind the latest updates to Windows without even considering open source solutions. As you can imagine, it takes a lot longer to write code this way. In addition, there is no government developer for our contract. There is a government DBA and system administrator, but no developer. So every decision that is made, and because they own the software is made by the government, is made by a program manager who doesn't know how long software should take to develop or what goes into it. Mm-hmm. And the final thing to consider is that the government develops software using Waterfall dressed up as Agile. <laughs> In other words, everybody con- everybody controls everything, Yes, even if it conflicts. Oh, yes, you're very Agile. Just tell me when you'll be done. Yeah. <laughs> uh, as you can imagine, there's a lot more to this issue, but these are just some of the frustrations I deal with on a daily basis. I love the show, and thanks for the entertainment on my drive. And uh, P.S., I'd also like to mention that our government partners frequently don't believe what we tell them. <laughs> If I say, no, that bug has always been there, we just didn't catch it, they look at me like I said, I'm from Mars. Yeah. No matter how loud I speak up, I am not taken seriously. Yeah, you know, it's funny, and maybe Bob's got something to say here too, but it's kind of funny when Waterfall dresses up as Agile, because then you have people thinking they can make changes, but it's just the change is a very long process. Right. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. So... What was the fellow's name again? Eric. 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 So my question for Eric is, why does he think that this is something special to government? (laughs) Um, Now, I I agree. No, there's there's a range of this kind of behavior. Some some industrial companies will behave better than that, and some will behave close to that. And government is probably at the extreme of of stodgy, bureaucratic, <laughs> ridiculous, irrational rules. But uh, everybody has them to one extent or another. Sure. Um, so it's not a, it's not a sufficient reason for the debacle of healthcare.gov. Mm. Uh, it's probably a contributor, no doubt. But, uh, that that was such a big disaster yeah and it was a disaster that that all of the software people working on it probably knew yeah was going to happen and certainly it's come out that they that many in the administration had been told it's going to be a debacle but they were going to ship no matter what well see that so that's a problem <laughs> <laughs> It's just another you know, day in the government, man. I, I spent a lot of time working at a company. Um, it's a company called Teradyne. Very good company. It was uh, in my youth. And um, one of their attributes was the authority of engineering. Uh, it was an engineering-based company. And the engineers at this company, whether they were hardware or software, um, had the absolute authority over shipment. Uh, if an engineer said it wasn't going to ship, then it wasn't going to ship. And uh, although you could, you could get a lot of heat from the sales guys and the managers and the marketing folks, and they could, they could come, you know, and yell at you in your cubicle. It was still your signature on the piece of paper that said, yeah, this thing can ship 
or not. Uh, and that's something that I think is really important, especially in a software world or in any engineering world. It's the engineers are the ones who know. And so they're the ones who have to put their signature on the piece of paper that says, yes, you may ship. Hmm. Well, shall we introduce you formally? Or Richard, do you want to finish your... I better uh, close out, Eric. Thanks so much for your comment. Obviously, it has elicited some response. <laughs> and uh, a .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com or on any of our mobile apps. We've got them for iOS, Android, Windows Phone 7 and 8, and Windows 8. And let me formally introduce Robert C. Martin, otherwise known as Uncle Bob. He has been a software professional since 1970 and an international software consultant since 1990. In the last 40 years, he has worked in various capacities on literally hundreds of software projects. In 2001, he initiated the meeting of the group that created agile software development from extreme programming techniques and served as the first chairman of the Agile Alliance. He is also a leading member of the worldwide software craftsmanship movement, Clean Code. Welcome back, Bob. Thank you very much. Good to be here. Great to have Actually, you. I'm in my office, but it's good to be there, too. It's good to be with you. Good to be with you in voice. Yes. And, uh, well, where should we start? I mean, this craftsmanship is not dead. It's thriving. And uh, what's, the, what's the state of the state? So here's what's on my mind. And this, this has been occupying my mind for uh, um, several months now. And, and it's this. I, I, um, I did a blog about this not too long ago. I started programming um, 50 years ago when I was 12 years old uh, uh, in 1964. And how many programmers were there in 1964? It was uh, you <laughs> and that guy in the basement of uh, Alcoa or wherever. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know the number, right? The, the, we could name a few of them, right? Dijkstra was alive. Um, um, you know, John von Neumann was alive. There's a lot of the old gurus that were around. But the number of programmers actually writing code for a living was probably in the thousands. Yeah, I would think of that in the thousands. Yeah. Yeah, because probably the number of computers was in the thousands. Yep. Um, now you forward space 10 years, um, 1974. And I am, I'm working at Teradyne at that time, um, as a, uh, a programmer working on mini computers. Uh, the PDP-8 had been out for a while. We actually had a clone of the PDP-8 that we were working on. How many programmers were there in 1974? There's still not too many. More comparatively not compared to not today. Yeah. But but more than thousands and probably some multiplier more than thousands. Yeah, at least in order of magnitude. Because now we have mini computers, right? Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of them. Everybody's got a PDP eight, everybody who's got a, a a factory or a or a shop floor or something like that, they've got a PDP eight or they want one. Um, so probably we're talking about maybe tens to hundreds of thousands of programs. Yeah, I'd say that's right. Yeah. How many programmers are there now? Millions. Too many to count. Many, many millions. Many yeah, millions. Yeah, it depends on whether you count the VBA programmers or not, but it's probably in the, in the tens to hundreds of millions. And you're talking about people who make their living by writing code, not yes. people who yeah. can code. 
Yeah. And if, if you really constrain it that far, it's probably in the low tens of millions. Yeah. And if you open it up and say, well, it's anybody who writes a little bit of code in the furtherance of their job, mm -hmm. then it's probably closer to a hundred million. So there's, it's awful lot of programmers. It's bazillions of them. It biz yeah. Yeah. Billions and billions. billions. <laughs> now we're going to talk billions. about space and forget this software stuff. Um, so. That implies some kind of geometric curve. And I, I did a little bit of research on websites and, and recruiting sites. And all of them say that the, you know, software, uh, programming careers are growing at a rate of, of somewhere between five to eight percent a year. And if you do the math on that and you kind of blur your eyes and wave your hands a little bit, you get this startling number, which is that the number of programmers in the world doubles every five years. Hmm. And if that's true, and I believe that's probably in the ballpark, it means that half the programmers in the world have less than five years experience. Wow, you're right. And this has always been true and always will be true so long as we're on that growth curve. Yeah, you know... That really brings it home as to how, uh, and then you think about how often we go back and revisit fundamentals, at least on this show, you know? So it leaves the industry in this state of perpetual inexperience, mm. right? We have uh, uh, far more inexperienced people than experienced people. And people will ask things, you know, where'd all the old programmers go? How come there aren't any old programmers? And the answer to that is, is that we're all still here. We're all still writing code. We're it's working. just that there never were very many of us to begin with. Right. And the, the percentage of us keeps going down. Down and down and down. Because we've got these hordes of, of new programmers coming in. And there's it implies that there's no one to train the new programmers. There's not enough people with background and experience to mentor the new guys. So we take the new guys and we toss them in a room and we throw meat in and we expect code to come out. There's nobody to show them how to do it. Well, unless you're talking about, you know, video resources like Pluralsight and other things like that. There you go. But, you know, those those can show you how to do specific things. But I agree with you that some, but there's no um, substitute for an experienced programmer sitting down with an unexperienced programmer and saying, you know, and looking through their code and, and giving them hints and tips and guidance. Are, are any, either of you two guys pilots? No. Uh-uh. No. So I just started to learn how to fly. Um, this was a year ago. I, I went to an airport, a local airport, and my son started flying a little while ago and he talked me into it. And I, um, I go into the, uh, the, the room there and the pilot walks out and says, Hey, you want to go for a flight? And, and I say, sure, I'd love to. And he says, okay, the first one's free. I did not know that he was a drug dealer at the time, but okay. <laughs> oh no. First one's free. We're going to um, go down to Columbia and <laughs> pick takes, up a friend. So he takes, <laughs> he puts me in the, in the cockpit of a nice little, uh, uh, little low wing aircraft and he takes it off and he gets it all trimmed out real nice and we're a nice level flight and he says okay take the controls and i grab the controls and it's easy to fly this plane it's just and you, you turn the yoke and the, the plane turns and you pull back on the yoke and the plane climbs and, and it just all works and you think you know this is easy i could do this 
there's a cautionary tale coming here. <laughs> I can smell yeah. foreshadowing a mile away. <laughs> <laughs> this is the 18-year-old who picks up a book on HTML or, or sees a video on JavaScript and he writes his first little bit of code. And you know, he can do that. It's the same feeling. The initial impact is easy. The initial impression is that it's just really easy. And we now, should I'm, not discount the importance of that confidence because <laughs> it is that confidence that propels you to go forward and discover how much you don't know and to be able to continue without feeling overwhelmed. Don't you think? Absolutely. And that was what the, the pilot was trying to get in me because he wanted me to up for lessons, which I immediately did. You know, he sold, he gave me the first dose of the drug for free. Right. I thought, yo, this is great. How do I do more of this? If, well, here's how you do it and open up your checkbook and start paying. Um, I have been doing this now for a year, uh, taking lessons on flying and, and the depth of skill and knowledge and body language and, Stuff that you have to learn is overwhelming. It's, it's enormous. And, and that guy has been sitting next to me for a year in the cockpit of that plane, giving me tiny little pushes and jugs and bits of advice and corrections. And I'm nowhere near, uh, uh, what I would call a pilot. Mm. Right? I, but, but he's better be sitting next to me most of the time. Now he's gotten me to the point where I can solo, uh, the plane. If the wind is less than six knots and there's hardly any crosswind component and I stay within three miles of the airport, then I am allowed to take the airplane and try to practice landings. But he's and, and if every time I do that, I have to call him first, check the weather's OK, get his permission. Then he says, OK, you can take it between these hours and then I can go fly. I am well, you know, well away from from hopping into an airplane or flying it anytime I want to. Hmm. Uh, and the, you, just the level of experience that this man has who's teaching me is enormous. And I, I deeply appreciate it. Where is that in software? Where is that guy who sits next to the, to the person who's just come out of school uh, and walks them through the issues and shows them what could go wrong and corrects them when they head down a wrong way. Where are those people? So my first thought there, Bob, is, uh, yeah, those people are the in the highest demand for work. And the people that can afford their services have not just come out of college. Do you know? I think there's a financial issue here. That well, I think there's two elements. First is the number of pilots isn't growing by 5% a year. Yeah. And yeah. The second is the consequences of failure as a programmer are somewhat less. Somewhat. Could be. <laughs> Could be. Depends. Somewhat. Should we talk about Toyota? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it depends on what you're programming. Well, and so that's the other issue. And the other issue is that that compared to what I was programming 50 years ago. Programmers today are put in a position where the impact of failure is significantly higher. Healthcare.gov right. is a good, is a good example of that. Cause there's, there's a case where a software failure 
very nearly derailed a law. And it doesn't matter how you feel about that law. Whether you like it or not, it should terrify you that a software failure could have derailed it. Um, other things like Toyota is an obvious case where, you know, the software was killing people. And, and if you look around the room, think about just looking in your room, how much software is running in the walls of your room? How much software do we interact with on a minute by minute basis? You know, that gets me wondering who wrote the code that um, pilots my drone that carries the live chainsaw. <laughs> I got to look into that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're going to talk about drones in a little while because because uh, I need to get one. Actually, did buy one, but anyway, not getting there yet. We've got all this software. We all interact with it, and and not just us. Everybody, everybody interacts with software almost on a minute by minute basis. Uh, our lives are now punctuated by these. Um, almost perpetual interactions with some kind of software somewhere. Mm. Our our society has become dependent on software in a way that it does not understand yet. You can't get into the car without engaging 100 million lines of code. You can't turn on the <laughs> microwave oven without engaging 10,000 lines of code. If you sit down to watch your TV, there's probably 20 million lines of code inside that television. You can't talk on the telephone without engaging massive amounts of lines of code. The amount of code that we simply depend upon every day, just to do our normal lives, is enormous. And 50 years ago, that number was zero. Wow. We haven't quite gotten to the point where we understand how dependent we are on this and what could go wrong. So we... We have massive amounts of code being produced by folks who are perpetually inexperienced <laughs> and our society is becoming ever more dependent on it. And that's that's not a stable situation. It's going to have to change. How, Bob? Get <laughs> <laughs> some answers. I know you have questions, but let's hear some answers. Okay. Well, one thing is, is that we're probably going to need and we've talked about this before. We're probably going to need some kind of professional ethics organizations, um, something like the the AMA for doctors or the Bar Association for right. for lawyers. And wait a minute, the I, Bar you know, Association is an ethics uh, board? <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> it's it's supposed to be. I got some lawyers I want to introduce you to, my friend. Um, but the intent, obviously, was some kind of ethical and standards control, right? Um, this is something that we're going to need, and we're we're probably not mature enough to engage a single body to do that. Uh, which leads me to think that where where we're headed is towards guilds, uh, small associations of companies or or people who adopt a certain set of standards and ethics and then try to promote them, and then allow these bodies to compete with each other over the next couple of decades to create a. Uh, a much smaller number of such bodies, perhaps even one. I um, can't help but thinking of the economics of this. In other words, the incentives that go into all of the forces that have produced our situation, they're pretty strong incentives. You know, a company has um, a great programmer. They don't want to share that programmer, not at all. Oh. They don't even want that programmer to, you know, to 
to look at anybody else's code. They don't want any other programmers looking at their code. Do you know what I'm saying? I mean, yeah. there's a strong economic disincentive to get where we have uh, guilds of software craftsmanship. And I, I don't think it will be um, large corporations that start that. What I what I think will happen, and and if I if I read the industry correctly, what's already begun to happen is that we start to see smaller consulting companies gathering together around a set of principles and ethics. And then as those companies grow and they offer their services to the industry at large, uh, they become more and more influential. The real point here is what's the benefit of the guild to the customer? Like we could try and go for the directly to the monopoly thing where you can't hire developers not in the guild. But if I'm the customer and I'm looking at a group of developers over here that are don't aren't in a guild and the group of developers over there that are in a guild, why would I pick the guild ones? So you'd, you'd pick the guild one if there was an obvious track record. You look at the, look at the guild and the guild shows, you know, our, our percentage of successful projects is X. The, the amount of lawsuits we've had is Y. And that's better than those other guilds over there. And so you, um, you wind up with companies wanting to go to certain guilds because they're better guilds. Of course, those guilds then start to change their rates. They up their rates. Sure. Um, and that's appropriate. And now you're making an economic decision. Do I want the high-priced, really good programmers or the low-priced, really crappy programmers? But the real measure of the guild is going to be when a project fails. And how badly it fails and what the cost of that failure is. Yes. Yeah. And I mean, it, my argument, when you go to the AMA model, what the AMA really does, more than anything, is assume the liability of their members. Right. That's where malpractice insurance lives. That's who is on the dime when a doctor screws up and same for the bar and so forth is a guild's got to have the money. They, you know, that's the paradigm. The paradigm is if they mess up, it's not this person who's just going to go bankrupt if they sue them. It's this larger organization and we'll be there. We'll make it right. Yes. Right. And that so, means t assuming the liability of software. And up until now, we have avoided the liability of software. That's what end user license agreements are. They say the limit of our liability is the amount of money you spent on the software, not what it's worth, not what it costs, just how much you spent on it. It is an attribute of some of the more successful consulting companies out there who will build software for you that they do take on some of that liability. Um, so one one that I know of used to say, if we don't deliver on time, you don't pay, which is a really interesting model. <laughs> I also like the idea of, hey, hmm. look, I'm not going to bill you by the hour for this. Give me 10% or 50% of the additional money you make. I like that software. model, too. <laughs> As a software developer. We were talking about ethics. Model. Welcome to... Uh, Welcome to the .NET Rocks Ethics Hour, folks. Well, you know, <laughs> this is some, we did something along this line at Strange Loop way back when, where we said, look, we're going to put, our appliance makes your website faster. When your website's faster, you more people buy and they buy more. So we'll tell you what, we'll put it in for 30 days and we're going to treat half the traffic and you're going to be able to compare half your customers going through the site faster with our, with our device and half not and see how much more money you made. And I'll tell you what, if at the end of the month you don't think you're making more money, you just want to pay for the product, how about we just keep the difference? And every time it was more money than the product. 
oh, and people yeah. just wrote the check. Yeah. And and we're happy to write the check. And happy, thrilled to write the check. Usually wrote the check within two weeks because what they what the VP of sales really saw was I lost this much money on the other half of the traffic this this past two weeks. <laughs> like here's my money. Turn it on for everybody, quick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, this is the my my point about this is when we actually assume the value of our software, that the money that our software makes companies, the money that it saves companies, then the whole discussion is different. You know, because now you have to figure that out before you build it. You know, that's an interesting part. Are you willing to really bet on your software? Because yeah. then your motivations are very different. You want it delivered on time. You want it working properly. Mm. You're motivated by all the right things. Provide results for your customer, and we all benefit. Yeah. That's, so that's the, one of the hallmarks of a profession. You yes. know, a profession puts skin in the game. They, they have some of their own in it, so they're taking part of the risk. Right. And if you, if you go into it in a, with a share-the-risk model, uh, it's a lot simpler. Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. Guess what time it is? Uh, it must be that happy time again. Yes, it's time to formally apologize to my lawyer, Gordon Vidal. <laughs> I'm sorry that I intimated that lawyers are unethical, and I'd like to give back the 20% discount you gave me on last year's contracts, and I'd like to cancel our joint trip to Tuscany this spring. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. <laughs> Actually, it's time to give away a D-Experience subscription to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. And uh, But before I tell you who won today, become a UI superhero with DevExpress UI controls and libraries and deliver elegant .NET solutions that address customer needs today and leverage your existing knowledge to build next-generation touch-enabled solutions for tomorrow. Whether it's an Office-inspired application or a data-centric analytics dashboard, DevExpress Universal ships with everything you'll need to build your best without limits or compromise. Learn more and download your free 30-day trial today at devexpress.com slash superhero. Awesome, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner is Klaus Broberg. Congratulations, Klaus. Yeah. And... Uh, it just occurred to me that um, DevExpress isn't giving away these D-Experience subscriptions. They're giving away the Universal subscription. Wow. Yeah. So uh, as I followed the chain of emails going back, uh, the last guy, uh, they're, they're giving out uh, Universal. So I'm changing the ad. It's uh, a DevExpress Universal subscription. That's the big one. Wow. So congratulations, Klaus. He just won that. A big pile of awesome from DevExpress. And if you don't know what we're doing here... Go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .NET Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. In every show, we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away $5,000 worth of technology to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But you have to uh, join to, to win. We also like to ask our guest... Uncle Bob, if you had $5,000 to spend today on technology, what would you buy? Oh, well. So I, I did mention drones, didn't I? Um, yeah. Yes, you did. Yeah. yeah. So, so uh, you know, I do these videos, right? I, I produce videos and, and sell them on cleancoders.com and their software videos. And, and um, I, I have this vision of having a drone that carries a camera 
and zooms away from me into the distance and does circles around me. It's carrying some kind of a GoPro or something. So Hey, I saw I that in The Sound of Music. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll, wear, I'll put the dress and the apron on. <laughs> Throw my arms out wide. <laughs> The Julie yeah. Andrews cam. Yeah, excellent. Just, Good, you know, yeah. drones are great, but just don't go to Joe's discount chainsaw carrying drones.com. <laughs> you don't want to go there. Uh, so we, uh, we picked up a drone not too long ago. Um, just a little one. It was uh, like a, um, a quadricopter mm-hmm, carries mm-hmm. a camera. Yep. And it's pretty cool because it's got a GPS receiver inside and yeah. it's got a compass inside and an altimeter inside and you can tell it. You know, go to 300 feet, go out uh, 100 yards, do a circle, then come back and land. And it'll do that all autonomously. This isn't the parrot um, drone, is it? This is a different um, one. No, no, I can't remember the name of it. Um, it's something that we found and thought, okay, well, this would be worth experimenting with. And so so we uh, um, we fired it up and immediately crashed it and destroyed it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so drones... Drones can be an expensive hobby, I think. Yeah. <laughs> we did get another one. We're going to be a little more careful with it. I think we understand it a little bit better now. Did you see the uh, the mishap that happened at a TGI Fridays where over Christmas they were delivering – what were they delivering? They but, were doing oh, mistletoe. Uh, mistletoe on a drone. Mistletoe via <laughs> drone. Yeah, inside. Inside. Yeah, I, and yeah. until it went crazy and yeah. cut a customer with the blades. Oh, oh yeah. Gosh. Yeah, yeah, that was one of the things we learned. Inside is not good. <laughs> that said, I did a demonstration to middle school kids in the classroom with a parrot drone, but we only went, you know, up, forward, five feet, and down. And I did have to retrieve it when it went a little too close. <laughs> Hovered yeah. over their heads. They were like, wah! <laughs> uh, so you just got to frame it with a joke. Okay, who wants a haircut today? <laughs> oh man yeah still wondering about all the incentives that are involved in in this and uh a call to our listeners perhaps you know what can our listeners do to be part of the solution rather than part of the problem well our listeners um i think the first step is if- for any of this to work properly is is a an understanding that your career is part of a profession and that there is some kind of ethics and standards associated with being a software developer, even if they're not yet expressed well in some kind of uh, document or guild. Mm. That you know, if you if you are a programmer, if you undertake to write code, you have a responsibility to do this well. And you have a responsibility to make sure that the the company who does not understand the technology that you do does not harm itself yeah. by forcing you to do something that you know would be harmful. Now, a junior developer probably ought not to be making decisions that, that are, you know, millions of dollars of saying no. Right. But, you know, senior developers ought to be in that position where they're going, you know, this is crazy. We can't do this. Someone somewhere in that healthcare.gov organization should have been able to stand up and say this is not shipping. Yeah, because he had to do that to the president. I would almost give him an exception <laughs> at that point. But, you know, I'm I'm with you. But this, this is the essence of what you've been talking about in the craftsmanship movement all along. It's like you are beholden to your craft more than your customer. Yes. Yes. 
you are beholden to your craft more than your customer because your customer expects you to know your craft and to exercise right. it and to protect them from what they don't know. Uh, and, and although they will confront you and rail and yell and, and call you all kinds of names, um, you are still responsible to make sure you don't harm your employers, your customers. I wonder if the precursor to the guild model on this is like an insurance policy. You know what I mean? Like in the end, mm. it's about the liability of the software. So if you've come up with a value proposition around the software and then you insure the delivery of that commensurate to its value. And now everybody's highly motivated not to breach the policy. I'm just trying to create that right in set of incentives so that, you know, in the end, the, the argument with the boss where he says, it's my money, do what I say. And you have to be able to argue back, you know, in, in, in engineering role or in a medical role or anything like that. It's like, I'm the professional and I say it's not going to go that way. You know, take it up with them. You or, you know, and in the insurance model would be, this would be a breach of the policy. Do you want to take that on? So that would be interesting. In in the guild model, the guild would offer that policy. Right. Um, as long as you follow these directives, as long as you're within these standards, we will ensure you from errors and omissions and so on. Exactly. Yeah, that would be very interesting. Uh, yeah, it would be also interesting if, if programmers themselves uh, had to pay the uh, premiums on their own errors and omissions uh, right. in policies to the guild. Yeah, it's like, this is my policy, it's my butt, and it's yeah. every project I work on from now on. So the fact that you're unhappy with this one isn't as important to me as what happens next. So yeah. it makes it easier for me to do the right thing. My premiums are not going to go you know, through the roof just because you're going to miss a deadline. Yeah, because you made a promise you couldn't uphold, right. mm. which is, I cannot tell you how many times it comes down to that. You shot your mouth off to the board, didn't you? Mm. Didn't you? You said it'd be done in a month. Well, now you get to go take it back. And you got to feel for these guys, right? Because um, they don't know. They don't have the knowledge to know. And and the board is breathing down their neck. Yep. So they're feeling the pressure. And, and they think they've got no choice. They've got to make some kind of commitment. Then they, then they push that back on the programmers or on the technical staff. Uh, and all of that has to get turned around and pushed right back all the way up to the board. And, you know, if the guy could go to the board and say, look, my insurance premiums are going to go through the roof if I do this. Right. Oh. <laughs> Yet suddenly it's a different conversation, right? Like, it's, yeah, we, we're leaning against something that is meaningful to non-technical people. Yes. Yeah. Right. Because, you know, the funny thing that's going on right now, and I I, have, I work with boards and, and, and corporations that at this capacity where they're like, hey, you know, we're running at about a 40% project failure rate, but when we win, we win so big, that cost is irrelevant. Mm. Like the returns on our software are good enough that I could soak up that failure rate. So just keep going. And that just makes me cringe. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm sitting here in my office just tied up in a little ball he heading towards fetal position. Be because yes, that's true. When you win, you win so big that that all the disasters don't matter. But the disasters are starting starting to matter more and more and more, and we can't continue with that kind of mindset. It's not that the failure rate's going down; it's the cost of failures going up. 
Yes. Well, yeah, and the risk of failure is going up. Yes. People have stopped listening to Douglas Crockford because he told them, don't write bugs. <laughs> the best advice ever me. given at the end of a keynote don't write bugs. <laughs> don't write bugs. Yeah. Don't do that. <laughs> yeah, you know all those bugs here? Don't write those. <laughs> and everything just, will be fine. Just stop that. Just stop that. <laughs> you know, if 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 you allow me to write bugs, then I can meet any schedule that you set for. Me. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. Oh man. <laughs> no problem. We'll yeah, get there. No problem. It's easy. Well, I mean, we're going we're going after the hard part here, I think, which is we're trying to change the paradigm. And I don't know if and when we can. It's going to have to happen at some point. But when I look at the craftsmanship movement and the agile movement and so forth, I mean, these are treatments around behaviors and attitudes, which tend to fall in line when the paradigm is correct anyway. Mm. But it's almost like these are the things we can do that we can control, so we'll do them. But boy, if the paradigm was right, those things would be a heck of a lot easier to do. Yeah, and we we just have to find the right incentives. That's it. It's not a not an easy task. There's a great story in engineering about a, a cathedral collapsing again, like in the circa the 1200 AD, where a group of folks get together and say, "Like we got to stop this," and they start. That really is like the beginning of the civil engineering practice. I'm wondering what collapse event would be the collapse event for software to become a real engineering practice well you know the one we've been talking about richard healthcare.gov was pretty colossal collapsing yeah we got away with it yeah yeah we're out the yeah. other side yeah we did get True. away with it i i always thought that year 2000 was going to be the one you know i i made a lot of money that year in the year running up to 2000 that was a good year because yeah. they wanted everything fixed and we had a lot of stuff to fix you were a global programmer I was no, I was a, a PC programmer, but I'd written software to get controlled ports. Uh, I'd worked in a bunch of banking software. There was lots of stuff to fix and lots okay. of stuff to certify. By ports, you don't mean hardware ports. You mean big boat ports, container ships. Yeah. Yes. yes. Yeah. Yeah. And they really, really, really wanted to be working on January first, two thousand. They really wanted to. It's good. That's a strategic national asset. You meet guys in black suits with with sunglasses on a lot when you work with those kinds of projects. <laughs> <laughs> and, and and they care a lot about this is going to work on January 1st, right? Bob, let's let's go back to our original problem that we started here and talk about how maybe the virtual technology world can help us do real mentoring if uh, if at all possible. Are there any technologies that, you know, Skype or whatever that we can utilize to uh to do that sort of one-on-one uh, guidance and I, I guess does technology or no technology you got to have to want it right you're gonna somebody's gonna have to provide the service and somebody's gonna have to to utilize it it's an interesting idea could um could a team of experts um offer the service to pair program with uh, senior developers or or medium level developers at a company uh, over Skype or over some kind of um, shared terminal sure. technology. We certainly have the technology to do it now. Yeah. Um, so 
it's an interesting idea. Could could someone put a company together to sell that service? <laughs> well, and that's the question, right? Those <laughs> mm. that need it probably need it because they can't afford the guy who's doing the mentoring. You know what I'm saying? Right. I mean, that brings me back to this economic problem. The guy who needs it the most is the guy who just got out of college, the junior developer, who they've hired because they're cheap and expects them to just go to Pluralsight or whatever, or listen to .NET Rocks and become an instant expert. Um, you know, that are they going to pay for that kind of thing? I'm thinking no, but however, it can be done cheaper, um, if the expert is somewhere else in the world and doing it remotely. Yeah. You don't have to fly him in. Right. And right. you don't have to pay for a full day. Right. Uh, you pay for a half day, you pay for a quarter day. Um, and you get a, you know, almost an onsite expert for a, a brief period of time. Maybe it's based on some kind of question and answer model. Maybe there's, um, Maybe there's a regular subscription where you're 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 there for two hours once a week. Yeah. Um, those could be interesting ideas. Sure. Now, the the problem I think there is that there still aren't enough thirty year experienced programmers to serve the current community. Yeah. Even in that model, <laughs> there is a lot of that. Um, especially in the startup community and the, you know, the 20 year olds who are, who are doing all kinds of, of, uh, awful stuff. Um, but yeah, there's, there is that. But if you find a good, a good programmer who's, you know, got 30 years experience and he's, he's up to snuff on everything. He's doing his JavaScript and he's doing his, his Node.js crap and all that stuff. Um, I can't let that slide, man. <laughs> you know, I'm crying over here. It's all the same bucket of bits in the end. But, the, you know, that, that, 30, that 30-year-old programmer is going to run rings around oh. the 20-year-old. The 20-year-old's going to have a ton of energy. Right. And, and can work until 3 a.m. Yeah. And, and the 30 year old, the 30 year uh, veteran is going to, you know, in a, in a day undo all the crap that the 20 year old did and then do yeah, it. Yeah. Right. That kind of enthusiasm gets you a long way down the wrong path overnight. Yeah, it sure Although, does. you know, there, you got to say something for the people who don't have the, I mean, experience is good, but we also lived through a lot of stuff that we had to unlearn. You know, and so young people probably may be more flexible than the old guy who's set in his ways, who may know how to code his way out of any problem or her way out of any problem, but who also may be stuck with a particular set of tools or doesn't like that technology or, you know, no, this worked for me. It'll work for you. Do you know what I'm saying? I mean, there are... and we all know folks who who have gotten set in their ways and they, they don't want to change and they don't want to learn anything new. What they did before was good enough, but that's not the mark of, of a professional that you would like to, to bring on board to help your crew. Yeah. Uh, you bring in a, you bring in a, a really good experienced surgeon because you've got, you know, you need open heart surgery. And if he, if he opens up his bag and he starts pulling out, you know, stone knives and bear skins you're gonna think well okay okay maybe not yeah, what yeah you maybe really, not yeah what you really yeah. want is somebody who's seen it all you know who's seen every 
combination of problems, you know, who's seen every sort of or, or can think their way out of anything like that, you know, anything that gets thrown at them. Because that really is the problem. I mean, a junior programmer who doesn't have the experience can't rely on, oh, I've seen this before, you know, let me go down this path versus, you know, sometimes they'll churn. So I was going back to the airplane metaphor. I was I was practicing the other day and I was alone in the aircraft uh, and I was doing a, a climbing turn and I got to the altitude I wanted to be at. And what you do in that case is you cut your power. So I, I cut my power down to stay at the altitude I wanted to be at. And all of a sudden, the airplane starts banking to the right, oh. apparently out of my control. And I, I try to adjust it with a little bit of ailerons and it continues to bank to the right. And I freak out in the cockpit and think, well, I don't know what the hell's going on. So I'm jamming full power and I'm going to climb out of this, which is what I did. Um, I talked to my instructor about it later and he said, yeah, uh, and you did the right thing because you didn't know. But what happened there is that you probably hit a little pocket of turbulence. And if you just kept on adjusting gradually, uh, you would have been fine. And, and not worry about the fact that it felt out of control because it really wasn't out of control. Now, the net result of my throwing full power on was that I completely blew my landing pattern. I had to cycle around, go all the way back to the beginning part. It took me 10 minutes to readjust and enter into the landing pattern. So I lost 10, 15 minutes um, of time just because I had to overreact. And the, you know, my instructor said, yeah, you probably wouldn't have had to do that. You, you would have been able to just keep on the pattern and go along. This is this, this experience, uh, causes you not to react mm. to situations where if you don't have the experience, you're going to do something drastic, which is the right thing to do when you don't have experience. And yet it's going to cost you enormously. And it just takes more time. Yes. Right. It's the price of time because the alternative is that you're wrong that it, you could have flown out of it, that it was a more serious problem, and you crash. Yeah. So, I mean, it's the, the experience tells you, I can work my way out of that inexperience. You, you, you push the panic button sooner, and it costs you time. And so we see, you know, lots of folks in startups, and, you know, 25, 26, 27-year-olds in startups, uh, and they're all burning the midnight hour, and they're all working 80-hour weeks, and, and they think that's what it takes. Uh, but the reason they're in that mode of working 80-hour weeks and, and – working like crazy is because they're repeating that that episode again right. and again and again they're throwing mm -hmm. on full power when that's not what they needed mm -hmm. and going way too far off and blowing their landing pattern and then they have to circle back and oh yeah we burned a lot of time on that one but you're also teaching the employer that you'll pull those kinds of hours to get the result well yeah like which is a disaster yeah <laughs> well the other side of this is just suppose so suppose i get the senior developer and this guy really does kick butt. And he maybe he does only needs to work a nine to five uh, work day to get stuff done. And maybe I'm asking him to put in the hours like the juniors do. And he's looking at me like, you're an idiot. At the same time, as that employer, am I best served just letting that guy get his job done, build the software? Or should he be teaching his other developers? Like oh, In well, terms of delivering the project. He should be teaching. He should be watching them. He should be. He should be guiding them to do the delivery. He should be pairing with everybody and taking no tasks on his own. That would be just, my that would be my advice. And that's but that is very much a long term mindset. 
and for making and you're going to yank him off every time it looks like you're going to be late on a set of deliverables go go you know i i would have him i would have this experienced guy working with everybody else all or the girls yeah all the juniors girl a guy or girl right uh working with all the juniors um not taking significant tasks on that person's own but just working with everybody, pair programming with them, intercepting them when they do things that are a little off, redirecting them, uh, behaving like a real director of engineering is someone who's, who is, or, or a lead coach. Hmm. Yeah. I, I like the idea of you do no work on your own. Anytime you see something needs to be done, you get somebody and you work with them to get it done. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Just so that you're always rubbing that experience off all the time. It's not only you need the right senior guy and junior guys willing to learn, but you need leadership, you need management that embraces the fact that if we don't cultivate this, we'll never dig ourselves out of the hole. Hmm. Yes, you do. Yeah. Yes, you do. I, I think that's a show. <laughs> I think you're right. That, them's, them's closing words. Yeah. Bob, any, any final thoughts before we sign off on this one? Uh, well, yeah, you besides know, your love of could no JS, don't write bugs. <laughs> yeah, yeah, don't write bugs. Good closing. Good closing don't write bugs. Everything will be fine if you just stop that. <laughs> Uncle Bob, it's been a delight again. Always Thank you. Good to be with you guys. All right, and we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in september 2002 and make sure you check out our sponsors they keep us in business now go write some code see you next time got a transmitter band by the fcc